Let's stand and hear God's word. This is Psalm 32. It's not in your bulletin. Uh, But if you want to find it, look at it. Here it is. Psalm 32, and I'm going to read the whole psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach you. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May be seated. This is the word of God. So, uh, in thinking about this psalm, uh, it is a it is a, an honesty psalm. It's a confession psalm. Uh, it's all about bringing whatever is in you, whatever has happened, whatever you're most ashamed of, to the Lord. Uh, and in thinking about it, I remember a time many years ago. My uh, one of my best friends from high school. Um, he is a an alcoholic and. Uh, he invited me to an open meeting, so that means that even if you are uh, not an alcoholic, you can come uh, to be able to participate, and I had never been to one before, and so I, I go to this meeting, and I don't know, like people are, there's probably 50 people in there, and eventually it was, it was a really big meeting, there was about 100 people there uh, when it was all said and done, and in the beginning, everyone's milling about, and they're drinking coffee, and eating snacks, and they're talking, uh, but we sit down, and uh, the custom is that you have to go through everyone who's there, and you say your names. Um, and what I noticed immediately was the first person said, Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm an alcoholic. And, and, and over time, about like the 20th person came by, and I was just kind of drawn in to the point of, when my name came around, I almost went like, hi, I'm Brooks. I'm an alcoholic, even though I'm not. <laughs> because I, I, I was drawn in by their honesty. None of them were saying, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a very successful lawyer. Hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a really good parent. Like, hey, I'm, right? No one was putting their best foot forward. They were actually putting something else forward. Um, They're being honest. And it was, it's infectious. So we want it. I want it. At the same time, we don't. We want honesty and we don't all at the same time. We're terrified of it. You know, if I actually share with God, but especially you, what is going on in me, it's too risky. Like, what are you going to do with it? I have no control over that. What if you find out uh, these things that are in us and you turn on me? 
You say, yeah, I'm not going to treat you the same way anymore. It's too shameful. Right? There's things about us that we're just so ashamed of. Like we... There might be things you actually have not shared with another person before. Or we might be the kind of person just to want to be a burden. You think, yeah, like they, I, I don't really need to give this to God or to anybody. I don't want to be a burden. But this psalm, it, it nudges us a different direction. It says, no, life from God comes from confession. It actually comes from being extremely honest, but How? <laughs> It presses home this idea, this truth, that God actually wants to forgive you. Like, he, he isn't just forgiving us out of duty. He likes it. He prefers it. Uh, and he invites us to be honest so we can experience it. Um, and it gives us three different ways that this comes about. So number one... It says, confess because you're going to be happy. Confess because you'll be happy, right? Look, look at the beginning, verse 1 and verse 2. It says, blessed is the one, and then verse 2, blessed is the man. It says, blessed. And, and in Hebrew, uh, blessing, a, a really great synonym actually is happy. So happy is the one. Happy is the man. What, what kind of person is it describing as happy or blessed or good? It's, it's not what we expect, right? We, this person uh, is described not as someone who's successful, not as someone who is particularly moral, not as someone who's an upstanding anybody. This person's described as a failure. Look at the, look at the words that are described um, about this person that's being blessed by God. One, in verse one, they've transgressed. Um, transgressions are breaking God's boundaries, gone outside of the way that God has made things to be. They've sinned, also in verse 1. They've missed God's mark of perfection. They've either done what they shouldn't have done, or they haven't done what they ought have done. And then the, the last phrase that's used of them is in verse 2. They have iniquity. Iniquity is guilt. Iniquity is you feel heavy, you feel ashamed, you feel dirty because of something that you've done. And this person is a failure, yet they're forgiven. That's why they're happy. That's why they're blessed, right? Because then three words are used to describe how those things are gone, how they're taken care of. Verse 1 says they're forgiven, meaning their, their transgressions have been lifted off of them. That's what it means. And taken away, they're gone. Their sin is covered. It's concealed. It's as if God's not thinking about it anymore. It's blocked. And this one's wonderful. I love this. Like, blessed is the man, verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He does not count, meaning he does not consider or think about or transfer that guilt to you, to me. It's not there anymore. This person's a failure, but they're happy. They're blessed because they've been forgiven. You know, I, I used to do landscaping. Um, I still do it at my house, but sometimes I just kind of wish I was a landscaper. <laughs> I miss those days um, sometimes. But uh, one day, uh, this is when I was in St. Louis. My wife and I lived in St. Louis before we came to Texas. And uh, I, my uh, boss, David, said, hey, Brooks, you need to go to this house, and you need to uproot this kind of small tree, and we're going to plant it somewhere else on the property. I'm like, great, 
I've done that before. I can do it. He's like, great. I got to go do something over here. You start handling it. I'll come. We'll do it together. So, okay. So, I, my favorite tool is the pickaxe. I just love it. Uh, and uh, swinging it down on the ground just makes me feel manly. And um, I went over to the tree, and ra- rather than asking for help, I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Like, I got this. And kind of had this, like, macho man mentality come over me. Um, and I start hacking at the tree down in the, the ground. And I'm like, I got this. I'm going to get it out. Um, David shows up, and he looks at the tree, and he's furious. And he uses words that I can't say right now at me. And the reason being is because I had forgotten one thing. You, when you try to uproot a tree... You can't hack at the roots. I was destroying the bulb of the tree, which is where its life comes from. (laughs) And David was furious. The tree's fine. But I say it, I tell you that because I could have just been honest about the fact that I didn't actually know what I was doing. And it would have completely changed the situation. Because we, we sit here all the time and we don't feel like we can be honest with anyone. God, yes, but then each other. Like, we are so good at acting like we don't have problems. Like, we do this on social media. You know, there's like a, uh, like a movement of people that more or less will post things uh, on their Instagram feed or whatever that looks like that they haven't tried to, like, get out of bed in the morning. Like, oh, just got up, had my coffee. And yet they've clearly spent, like, 35 minutes getting ready. You know, so it's like perfect imperfection. It, it, we feel this, this urge to only share, uh, especially in that venue, the perfect things of our lives. We try to prove that we're perfect through our busyness. It's easy. Like we're just, we never stop. We never, we, we, we kind of feel this impulse. If I'm not doing something, who am I? I mean, I'm, this is huge for me. I mean, this, this past summer, stopping more, uh, you know, not, not doing as much RUF stuff was hard. It was so hard for me. I'm an existential crisis when I stop. We try to prove that we're perfect through our conversations. You ask me how I'm doing, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> too ple- too, you know, I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, we have phrases even that we use to like not actually share with each other what's going on. And, and, and of course, the Bible is also not saying that we need to be unwise how we like, don't go to Starbucks later and, like, dump your life pain on the barista. But, like, this is true of us. We, we try to prove we're perfect through our spirituality. Like, we, I, I don't think we cognitively think this, but I do think functional, like, we really do believe that if I do more for God, if I read more of the Bible, if I come to church, if I try to serve the poor, if I try to do good, I, I'm going to get more from God. Like, he will like me more. If I can just do enough, he'll be happy with me. And this psalm lovingly disagrees with us on all those points. Um, It says, no, happiness comes not from being perfect. Happiness comes from realizing you're forgiven, from your imperfections, from your sins and failures. And then you're free. Scott Sauls, he's a pastor, In Nashville, he says this, 
It is essential to begin our journey together with this truth in our minds and hearts that the first step in becoming like Jesus is acknowledging how unlike Jesus we are and knowing that he loves us just the same. We must not try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Rather, we must realize we don't even have boots. Honesty, right? That's where happiness comes. That's, that's the first reason, first way in which God says, hey, I want to invite you into a deeper life of honesty and confession. Number two, why else can we confess? Because hiding actually hurts. It feels better to reveal what's going on. Look at, look at what David says here. <clears throat> yeah, I meant to mention this is a psalm of David. Um, he says this in verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My di- uh, uh, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Uh, David is describing a situation where he actually feels something. Like he's going through a lot, right? He has sinned. He's done something wrong. This is not explained in the context, so it's a little speculative. But what we know about King David's life is that at one point, while he's the king of Israel and the leader of, I mean, in many ways, the religious leader of God's people, um, a man after God's own heart, he sees a woman, Bathsheba, who he finds to be very attractive, finds a way to get her husband killed and then sleeps with her and then hides that for at least seven to nine months, long enough for a child to be born. And that's when Nathan, the prophet, causes confession to come out of him. So he hides this for a long time. Leader of God's people, right? He knows what this is like, is my point, whether he's talking about that or not. He knows what it's like to keep things. Verse 3, his bones waste away. It's an internal nagging. Like, it hurts in his bones. Verse 3 again, he's groaning all day long. So now it's an, it's an external. There's an outward groaning. Like, he just, he feels, like he's talking about how bad he feels and what's going on. And then verse 4, his strength is dried up. He has no energy. Like, he doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning. He doesn't want to be himself. And why? Here's what's interesting. Why? Verse 4 For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. It's God's hand that's pressing on him and making him actually feel all of this. Like, kind of an aside here, like, God actually purposely sometimes brings pain into our lives, not to hurt us, but actually to make us aware of things that we're just very unaware of. Like, you might actually have felt or are feeling the heavy hand of the Lord, but that, that is not proof that he doesn't love you. It's actually proof that he does. He presses down on David. He presses down on us, not so that we will stay in our guilt. Notice, feeling the guilt is good, but living in the guilt is not. Because immediately, what does David do? Verse uh, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. Uh, I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When I read this verse, it's, it, um, it kind of surprises me. Like, it's so quick. You have to actually go back to it and relook at it and relook at it because what you expect is David to say, uh, you know, he's, he's having to beg God for some type of forgiveness. He's having to make a promise. I'm never going to do that again. I'm, uh, I, I promise I'm going to be better. I'm going I'm to add something to my life that's good uh, in place of this bad that I've done. 
and it, what's interesting is that he, it's not, what he says is, not that I was honest and you crushed me. Not I was honest and you shamed me. Not I was honest and you rejected me. I was honest and you forgave me. It's so quick. It, it's as if God is sitting there waiting to forgive him because he wants to. Uh, Sophie, our daughter, is two and a half, going on three. She'll be three in November. Uh, and because of this, for I know parents know this, you read all kinds of books and watch all kinds of movies you never would read or watch. Um, and it's actually really wonderful. We've, I've read Corduroy the Bear so much this summer, and I wouldn't do that normally, but you, you should. It's a great book. It's a great story, and I'm going to tell you about it. So here's why. Um, Corduroy the Bear has green overalls, and one of the straps is broken. And he's in the store. He's a living bear. He's not just a stuffed animal. He's alive. And so when he's in the store, Lisa, this little girl, wants him, comes up to him. Mom is very uh, practical. We don't have enough money. Uh, you know, and, and besides, that bear is messed up. You don't, want, you don't want a messed up bear. So she goes home. She's sad. Corduroy's like, what's messed up about me? I didn't know this. So he goes in the store throughout that night to try to find a button to fix the strap. And he goes on these adventures and, and all that. So the next day, he does not find the button. The next day, he wakes up, and Lisa's right there. And what has Lisa done? Lisa has emptied her piggy bank that night and has come to buy him. So she buys him and takes him home, has a little bear bed for him, puts him in the bed. <laughs> Kimmy's crying. Put, puts him in, in, in the bear bed and then says this. This is, this is amazing. says, uh, Lisa sat down with Corduroy on her lap, began to sew a button on his overalls, and she said this, I like you the way you are, but you're going to be more comfortable with your shoulder strap fastened. And then she fixes what's wrong with corduroy. Lisa's a Jesus figure, y'all. <laughs> like, spoiler, right? This is exactly what God is doing. He, he, he empties his piggy bank. He actually buys us back. He actually wants us. It's not, it's not like a duty. He wants us. And then he doesn't just bring us in. He wants to fix us. But all of that has to come through being honest about what's wrong with us, being honest about the shoulder strap being, being broken, being messed up. And he forgives him. David, David knows this about God because he looks back, he can look back to the things that God was doing in their midst. Right? For them, they regularly would go to the temple and know day after day they see these sacrifices and what they're being shown is that because something else loses its life they will have life because something else is treated guilty they can be treated as guiltless so he trusts that God will treat him this way we look back to something greater Jesus when he came to earth actually claimed that he was this God of Psalm 32 and then one further he did not just say that I'm God he said that, and he said, well, I'm actually the sacrifice that all these other sacrifices were pointing to as well that even promotes the forgiveness that we're talking about, that makes it possible for sinners to be forgiven in the first place. Jesus said, I'm both. Like, we have every reason to believe that there's literally nothing that's so bad about us that he can't forgive. I mean, you look at this psalm, and, and it, doesn't actually give, it doesn't actually give a category for sins. It doesn't say that there's these really, really awful things that are very difficult for God to forgive. And then here are these so-so things that are a little easier for God to forgive. It says 
open, stop hiding, and come to me. And it's gone. I, I do think one of our struggles, I do think one of our deepest struggles here is that we do actually believe God, sure, God forgives those people, but he won't forgive me. Yeah, sure, he forgives those things, but he won't forgive this. Whatever the this is that comes in your mind, that's precisely the thing that Psalm 32 wants to press onto you, that no, there is no category. There's nothing that God can't forgive. You can't out his grace. That's not how he is. Dane Ortland, um, he came out with a book recently called Gentle and Lowly. He says this, fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We're factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, just uh, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. But he won't. He would not have given up his life for us just to stiff arm us with the things that we think are awful. He wants us to stop hiding. We come out and it's better because he's there to forgive. Lastly, briefly, confess because God is for you. So we confess because it's going to make us happy. Hiding actually hurts. It's better to come out to him, but then confess because God is for you. Look how this ends. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me. The great shouts of deliverance. He's talking, he's using imagery like, like flood storm imagery to say that what the judgment that I feel, the self-contempt that I feel, the guilt that I feel, and rightly so, you have to protect me from that. You have to be the, the hiding place for me. You have to block out that storm for me. Uh, and then it's interesting, he switches subjects in verses 8 and 9. Uh, saying, don't be like in verse 9, be not like the horse or mule without understanding. I mean, this is God now speaking to us. Now God is speaking to David. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it won't stay near to you. He's essentially saying, like, just don't be stubborn. Don't be like a horse or mule. It has to be jerked to the right, jerked to the left. Like, when you know you need to reveal something to the Lord, do it. Why? Because he's for you. He's not against you. Look at uh, verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love is a beautiful word. It, it means loyal. It's one Hebrew word. We have, a, we have trouble translating it because it's so rich, so we have to put two words to it. But it's love that's loyal. It's love that sticks. It's God's covenantal love. It's love that he won't break on his end, even though we do. And he's saying that, that kind of love surrounds you when you are at your worst. All because of Jesus. All because of what he's done. I mean, David, again, would look back, and he would know God's unfailing love because he would look back at the Exodus. He would look back at God's deliverance um, from their time in slavery in Egypt. He would look back at God's work then, we also look back. 
we look back to what Jesus has done. Because what, what Jesus was doing on the cross is pretty wild, but Jesus is choosing to let God's unfailing judgment land on him so his unfailing love will land on us. That's precisely what he came to do. And so, when we actually have these terrible things about us, past, present, future, we go, you've proven you're not going to cast me out. You've proven to me that you're for me, even at my worst. Even at your worst. What, what does this mean? Two quick things. One, it, it means that we actually can be far more honest with each other than we typically are. This psalm isn't so much talking about communal honesty, but it is a, it is a psalm that's sung together. So it's encouraging God's people to share, to, to actually say what's happening. Because if, if I trust that God is for me, then in, in one way or another, it, it actually matters a little less if you're for me or not. <laughs> and I can be more real. I can be more open, even though I'm terrified of it. We're all terrified of it. But then, secondly, we can be honest with God. I, 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 do, I do want you to, to see this. This is probably the most profound thing about this psalm. I hope you can tell I like this psalm a lot. Um, verse 11 ends with a command to rejoice. It, it doesn't get, be, it says, be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. It, it's not giving us the permission. God's not giving us the permission to rejoice when we've felt at our worst, when we've done our worst, when we thought our worst, said our worst. When sin is there, he's not giving us permission to rejoice because of his, his forgiveness. He's telling us to rejoice. And that's the last thing you and I feel like we had the freedom to do when we're actually wrestling through these things. When we are deep in sin, that's the last thing. I feel like I had to be on like some probation period. I need to feel bad enough for 72 hours, for whatever reason, until I can pray or share Jesus with someone or whatever. Um, that's not true. It's not true. I'll end with this story. My, um, uh, my uh, seminary professor, who I had not met before, but his uh, name is Jay Sklar. Jay Sklar is a uh, world-renowned Hebrew genius. <laughs> um, pretty much helped translate the ESV Bible uh, and put it together. And Jay uh, was friends with a family in Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm from, and that family wanted us to bring these old antique chairs up to St. Louis for Jay. So we did. And I had not met him. He was going to be my seminary professor. I'm like, oh no, like this, this guy's a big deal. Like, I hope he likes me. And um, we bring the chairs. I meet Jay. He's super nice. And we start getting the chairs out of the uh, little miniature U-Haul thing that we had. And first chair got out, fine. Second chair, it was stuck. It was like wedged on something. And so I kind of moved my hand onto the handle, and I pulled, and the handle broke off. And my heart just sank, because <laughs> I looked at Jay, and I said, Jay, I'm so sorry. I'll fix it. I'll glue it, I'll pay for it, you know, I'll do whatever, you know, that I can. And he looked at me, he was so calm. He looked at me and he said, Brooks, it's okay. I got it. I'll fix it. Do not worry. Please don't. It, it's not that big a deal. I got it. I'll fix it. And I'm like, Jay, but seriously, this is your chair. I'm, I'm just so sorry. And he said, Brooks, I got it. And here's what's amazing. About a week later, 
he called me, and I didn't, I didn't pick I was doing something else. He left a voicemail, and he said, hey, Brooks, this is Jay. I just wanted to give you a call and just say again, don't worry about the chairs or the chair. It's fine. My wife and I fixed it. It's totally great. Thank you for bringing the chairs. And what did he do for me? In the moment where I felt most shame and most guilt, he said, I'll fix it. I have you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. You can be happy. You can rejoice today. That's our call. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you even for this psalm that uh, assures us of your love and uh, really just tries to, to convince us that even at our worst, you love us more than we think. Thank you for giving yourself up, and thank you for loving us like this. We pray all this in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.